0: know what we're doing here. (coughs) Now today, I'm going to cover chapter 22, verses 6 through 17. So that means the last five verses I'm not going to cover today, and I'm going to hold off on those verses next week, and then I'm going to sort of summarize the book of Revelation for you. So that, this week we'll cover verses 6 through 17, next week, which will be November uh, 13th, We'll cover the rest of the book. Then on November 20th, I'm not going to be here. Not next week, but the week after next, I will be in San Francisco at this annual conference that I attend. And Paul Michael Vaca is going to speak. Now, you know Jenny Till. You know the Till family. Uh, This is Leroy Till's grandson, Jenny Till's son. And he won the preaching award at Criswell College. And now he's at Southwest Baptist Seminary and he's working on his PhD in preaching. So when he graduated from Criswell College, he was the young man that I chose to speak on behalf of the whole class. Uh, Andrew Hebert followed him, the guy who spoke here, and he was the preaching student the following year. So you'll have a lot of fun with uh, Paul Michael Waka. Make him feel at home. And then I'll be back the following week, and we'll be in the Christmas season. So what I'm thinking of doing is going to the Gospel of Matthew and start working through those Christmas lessons. I want to start with the genealogy. Now the genealogy is very interesting because what Matthew says, he says, I'm laying out Jesus' genealogy, 14 generations from you know so Abraham to so and so, 14 generations from David to so and so, 14 generations up to the time of Christ. He says he divides the Genealogy in the 14th generation. Well, when you count out those numbers, you discover he doesn't actually give you 14 generations. He gives you 13 generations, then a 14 generations, and then the 13 generation. And this is what causes the critics of the Bible to say this book has all kinds of mistakes. Here Matthew says he's going to talk about 14 generations and he only gives us 13. What in the world is happening? And then you have an evangelical like us who come along, and when they throw you on the spot in front of a camera, you're sitting there like a deer with its uh, eyes in the headlights. And you don't know what to say. So we're going to actually deal with that genealogy, and you're going to see that genealogy is very uh, important. And we're going to deal with it in, a, in an exciting way. So that's what we'll do, and we'll be into the Christmas season. So after we get finished, Revelation we will be in the Matthew, okay? So, let's look at <clears throat> Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to start at verse 6. <clears throat> now, if you have not been with us, let me give you a somewhat of a summary. What you have in the book of Revelation is a series of visions that John has received in which Jesus speaks to him, and he has heavenly scenes and earthly scenes in these visions, and he sees angels, and he sees the future and a lot of other things take place. Now, these visions speak to two time periods. First, the visions relate to the churches of John's day. That's very important that you get that. The visions, first of all, relate to the churches of John's day. Rome is a very oppressive government. The Roman Empire is ruling the known world, the inhabited world. It's a very oppressive government, and it is Uh, calling upon all the people in the empire to sacrifice to its gods, to commit idolatry, and to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And as a result of that, John receives these visions in which Jesus warns these churches and the church members not to bow the knee to Caesar, but to remain faithful to him, No matter what the cost, even if it costs you your life. And he says, don't worry. In the near future, in John's day, in the near future, I'm going to come and I'm going to clean out your churches. The people who are compromising in your churches and are bowing the knee and offering sacrifices, I'm going to judge them. And I'm going to take care of the Roman Empire as well. Hey, is the Roman Empire around? No. Roman Empire is not, law, not around. Guess what? He did come and he did take care of the Roman Empire. So, a lot of the visions deal with the time period of the churches of John's death. Then, a very small portion of the visions talk about Christ's second coming when he brings heaven down to earth and he sets up the kingdom of God. Okay? So, those are the two things. There's a tension here. So, every time you see the word... I am coming, when Jesus speaks, I am coming, you have to determine whether he's coming to the churches to discipline the people in those churches and punish Rome for its oppression, or whether he's talking about the second coming when he sets up the kingdom of God. And there's a tension, and it's really hard to deal with. I think we've been successful in dealing with it. Now, this section that you're going to see right here basically deals with Christ coming to the seven churches and working out the situation there. So let's look at verse 6. He said to me, John is writing this, he said to me, meaning in the vision, these words, the words of the prophecy, the words of the vision, are faithful and true. These are reliable. You can count on what I say in the visions. These things are going to happen. You can stake your life on it. Then the end of verse 6, it says, and the Lord God of the holy prophets, John says, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Now remember, it's being written to the seven churches. In these visions, the angels, there are seven angels, and they're speaking to John. They're going to show him and his servants, do you see that? Christ's servants, plural. The people who are in the churches that are serving Christ. These visions are aimed at them to show them the things that must shortly take place. That would be in John's day. If this is talking about setting up the kingdom of God on earth, then we have a problem, don't we? Because he says in 90 AD, these things must what? And it's been 2,000 years, so something would be wrong. These are referring to events that are going to take place in John's day. So, in the first part of the verse, we see the reliability of the revelation. And in the second part of verse 6, we see the reason for the revelation. They are given to show the churches what must shortly take place. Now we see John's reaction to the revelation. Look what it says in verse, well, let's look at verse 7. We see this. It says, Behold, Jesus says, notice it's in red, probably in your Bible, Behold, I am coming quickly. Look at that. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, does that mean the second coming, or does that mean to the churches to clean them out? I believe it means to the churches to clean them out. Because it refers right back to verse 6, things that must shortly take place. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly, to fulfill the events in the prophecy." So I think it means he's going to come suddenly when they least expect it. He's going to catch the compromisers off guard. He's going to judge those people in the churches. He's going to take care of Rome as well. Look what he says. Blessed, verse 7, is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's the sixth beatitude in the book of Revelation. Blessed is he. Blessed is who? Who? Blessed is he who keeps what? The words of the prophecy in this book. Those that are obedient to what to Christ's instructions. Those who do not bow the knee to Caesar. Those who do not offer sacrifices to the false gods. And so we see the reliability of the word and he tells us he's going to come and settle up issues. Now look at verse 8. John's reaction. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I saw, and when I heard and saw I fell down before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See, that you do not do it. Don't bow down and worship me. I'm an angel. Now, this is in the present tense. He says, Stop bowing down and worshiping me. Because this isn't the first time John's done it. We saw earlier in the book of Revelation that John fell down before an angel on another occasion. And he worshipped the angel. And the angel said, stop doing this. Stop doing this. And it's a command. And look what he says in the middle of verse 9. Because I am your fellow servant. Now, if you want to know what angels are, they are servants along with us. They are spiritual, uh, heavenly servants. We're earthly servants. He says, for I am your fellow servant. Look what else in verse 9. And I'm of your brother the prophets. Do you want to know what angels are? They deliver prophetic messages on behalf of God. Just as John is a prophet. Look what he says. I am of your fellow prophets. Just as John is a prophet. Just as Isaiah was a prophet. Just as God has prophets in the church. So angels are heavenly prophets. Sent directly by God. So sometimes God sends prophecies through angels. Has he ever sent a prophecy through an angel? Remember what the angel said when they were at the tomb? They said, he's not here, he's risen. And then on the mount after Jesus went up, the angel said, this same Jesus you saw going up will come again in like manner as a prophecy. God prophesies through angels and he prophesies through people like John. And then in verse 9, the angel says, and I'm of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, what else is the angel? The angel's obedience. Hey, guess what? You're not to worship another being. You're only to say Jesus is Lord, and that's what the angel does. And so then he says, look, I keep the words of this book. Now you need to worship God. Okay. So now John's given fuller instructions. Look at verse 10. Then he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? Because the time is at hand. In other words, keep this book open, make sure that it's sent to the seven churches so it can be read in those seven churches because the time of these events that are going to take place are right at hand. And I'm going to come and I'm going to judge those compromisers in the church. And there are a lot of compromisers in these churches. Remember in chapters 2 and 3, how there were people who were encouraging others in the church to bow the knee. Remember Jezebel, the prophetess, so-called? She said, practice idolatry. Get involved with the temple prostitutes. Thus saith the Lord. She would say, it's okay to compromise. After all, you want to keep your job, don't you? You know, if you don't compromise, Rome's going to kill you. Oh, God doesn't really mind you doing that. He says it's okay. In your heart you believe Jesus is the Lord. It doesn't matter what you do outwardly. Just as long as you believe in your heart. So she was a false prophet. And Jesus says there in verse 10, Don't close this book. Leave it open. It has to be read in the churches because the time is at hand. Now, at this point, let me just make a an observation. What you have right here in this section of Revelation 22 is what we call an epilogue to the book. You know, you read books and you see television shows, and at the end you see an epilogue, which is sort of an addendum. This is the epilogue of the book of Revelation. If you said, Where does the book really end? Hey, it ended with the kingdom of God coming on earth, eternity begins. But these are sort of afterthoughts. Now, just as Revelation has an epilogue, it also has a prologue. Some books have forewords, don't they? They have a word that comes before the main body. That's called a prologue. An epilogue is something that comes after the main body. This is the epilogue. Let me show you the prologue. See if it doesn't sound very similar. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Revelation 1. Verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, see if you see some familiar words, to show his servants things that must shortly take place. Sound familiar? And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Does that sound familiar? Who bore witness to the word and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads. There's a beatitude. And those who hear, meaning obey, the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Prologue. Epilogue says exactly the same thing. These events that are being described in the body of this book are events that are going to unfold in the lives of those seven churches. Those that are compromising will be judged. Those that remain faithful to the end, even if it costs them death, will be rewarded. And Rome will lose its power ultimately. So... When you go back to Revelation 22, you continue onward, uh, you see what is said further, because this really makes sense. It's very interesting. Look what the readers are encouraged to do, or the hearers. Remember, this is being read to the churches. They're hearing it. There are compromisers in the churches that are hearing this being read, and there are the faithful in the churches that are hearing this being read. Look what is encouraged. Look at verse 11. He who is unjust, let him what? Be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. All right, there's the compromisers. There, there are the reprobates. He said, just keep on doing it. Yeah, just keep on doing it. If you're a reprobate, just continue to be a reprobate. And then look at this. Verse 11. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy... Let him be holy still. And so here we see the reprobates, and he just says, Keep going on. Keep going on. Guess what? I'm coming. (laughs) You're going to get what what you deserve. And the righteous, the ones who remain faithful, he says, Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. Now, it all goes back to verse 10 that the time is at hand. Now, look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, which indicates how he's coming. And I think refers back to, again, verse 11 and verse 10. I am coming. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming suddenly. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his works. The unjust and the filthy of verse 11 will get their reward. The ones that are righteous and holy in verse 11 will get their reward. He's not talking about the second coming at this point. And this is where we make our mistake, because we do not read this book in context. And we impose a theology on the book. And when we do that, we make a terrible mistake. Okay? And you'll see what I mean. So then you look what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Here's how Jesus identifies himself. He uses titles associated with deity. Okay? Look at verse 14. Blessed are those. Now we're going to have our seventh to be added to. Look at this. Blessed are those who do his commandments. What commandments? The commandments that are found in this book. Blessed is who that does the commandments. Those who are hearing this prophecy being read in the seven churches. Now we'll be blessed too if we do them. I want you to know that. But you'll see why this is important. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into that city. So, if you are faithful to the commandments, when his kingdom comes on earth, you will have, which we talked about last week, you will have a right to the tree of life, which is basically means eternal life and you will be able to enter into the gates of that city, the new Jerusalem that comes to earth. But outside that city are the dogs. Now, that doesn't mean literal dogs. It's talking about Gentiles, unclean people who reject Christ. And look who else will not get into that future kingdom. Sorcerers, deceivers who use means to deceive False apostles who perform fake miracles. Things like that. The sexually immoral. The murderers. The idolaters. And whoever loves and practices a lot. So, here's the warning to the churches. If you are faithful and you do not bow the knee, you will enter that future kingdom. If you are not and you fall into one of those categories, you will not enter that. You will be outside the kingdom of God. In fact, we know from two chapters before that those kinds of people end up in the lake of fire. Now, when you look at those words, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, liars, where have you seen those words before? You've seen those words, and those kinds of people, and those who practice these things, back in chapters 2 and 3, in those seven churches. So for one moment, I want to... Just go back there, and I want to show you how these words are used so you realize he's speaking to these seven churches. Okay. Now, we won't read all of chapter 2 and 3, but I'm just going to point out a couple things. Look at verse 2, for example, in chapter 2. Jesus says, I know your works. Remember, he says you're going to be judged based on your works there. Okay? I know your works. Your labor of patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not. You found them to be what? Liars. You've got liars right here in this church. See, Those people who are liars in this church are not going to enter the kingdom of God. Okay. Look what else it says. Look down at verse 14. Now we have another church. I have a few things against you. Because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Baal who was a false prophet, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to what? Idols. That's what we just saw back there in chapter 22. You have a guy in the church who sang, go on and sacrifice to idols and to commit what? Sexual immorality. That's what we just saw. These are the kinds of people that are right here in this church. Look down at verse 14. Or verse 20, rather. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. You see how it's all being mentioned here in these churches? Look over at chapter 3 and verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received the and heard, hold fast and repent. Hold fast and repent, he says. And that's what we are called basically to do, is to repent. He said, you still have a few people in verse 4 who have not defiled their garments. You have a few names, even in Sardis, of those who have not defiled their garments. How many people are in Sardis, the church, who have not defiled their garments? A lot. So you have this kind of sin going on in the church using all these practices that we've just mentioned. And look over at verse uh, like nine. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but look at this. Lie. You see that? Lie. So what we see is these are the practices that are going on in the seven churches. Now, what's Jesus going to do about it? Well, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 5. Look at this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Repent and do your first works, or else I will come to who? You quickly. And remove your candlesticks. See, he's coming. Where's he coming? To that church. He's going to straighten things out. And if they don't repent, he says, I'm going to remove your candlestick, which simply means I want, your church is going out of business. By the way, how many churches of these seven churches in Asia Minor still exist today? You know the answer. None. Everyone is, no, none of those are in existence any longer. Look down at verse 16. Here's what he says to this compromising church at Pergamon. Repent or else I will come to you quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. there again he comes to the church, not the second coming within the context of that church. down in verse 22 he talks about Jezebel he says, "Look what he says, I will cast her into the sick bed." Hi, who's going to do that? Jesus is. see now he's not coming in a physical way to that church, but he's going to solve the problems in that church because we saw earlier he walks among the candlesticks, he walks in the midst of the churches, whether they realize it or not. And he's going to come and he's going to straighten these things out. If you look at chapter 3, for example, and you look at verse 9, he said, I will indeed make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you've kept my commandment to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the world, the whole world which would be the Roman Empire. The, the word is oika, uh, from which we get our word ecumenical. means the inhabited world. Detest those who dwell on the earth. Look, verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Therefore, hold fast. Therefore, you hold fast. So he's coming right to that church. And, for example, again down in verse 19, he says, For as many as I love, I rebuke. I chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Look at that. Look, he's coming to the church. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, look at this. I will come in. Look, I will come in. And I'll dine with him. And he with me. Here is Christ coming to the church. Now, how many of these passages, uh, how many times in these passages have you seen the name of Satan mentioned? And his agents. For example, in chapter 2 and verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. Synagogue of Satan. There he is. Right in the middle of the church. See that? He's the power behind the compromisers. He's the one that's stirring up the trouble. Look at verse 13. I know your works and I know you live where Satan's throne is. Look at that. Where Satan's throne is. He talks about a guy in that same verse named Antipas, my faithful martyr. He was killed. There, you, have, you have murderers in your midst. He remained being faithful. He put, was put to death. Who was killed? Among you, where Satan dwells. Look, there's Satan right there. Satan is everywhere. Look down at verse 24. And now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who, do not, who have not known the depths of, look, Satan, as they say, I will put on you no further burden. So here again we see that Satan is mentioned there. And then we already saw twice in verse 9 of chapter 3, Satan is mentioned again. Plus his agents. Who are the agents? False apostles, mentioned right here. False prophets. Jezebel. Nicolaitans, mentioned twice. These are people that are in the church. We have, you have a guy in there who's like Balaam. He calls him Balaam. It's not his real name, but he's just like Balaam. Guy's stirring up trouble. So Jesus says, I'm coming, and I'm coming suddenly. when I do, I'm cleaning up this mess in these seven churches. Now, go back to Revelation 22, and let's finish out this section. You still with me? Now look at verse 16. I, Jesus. And the emphasis here is on I in the Greek text. Usually, the personal pronoun I is not written separately from a verb in the Greek text. But here it is. He says, I, Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you. To who? To the churches. These things, in fact, here's what it says. In the churches. Now, He emphasizes. He says, "It's I'm doing that. Look, even though the angel's doing it, I'm behind it. The angel has my full authority behind him. He's the one who's testifying. Look what he says. Testifying to who? To you. You see that? To you. That's plural. To all of you. All of you where? Look what it says. To all of you in the churches." And then he identifies himself. Now he identified himself back in verse 13 using divine titles. Look how he identifies himself this time in verse 16. I am the root and the offspring of David. That would be identifying himself as the Messiah. I am the Messiah. He's giving himself messianic titles. I am the bright and the morning star. Uh, The root and offspring of David is a reference to Isaiah 11.10 where it talks about a coming root, a descendant, an offspring. A root is a shoot that comes forth from David. Uh, The offspring means his descendant. The prophet said a descendant from David would come forth who would be the Messiah. And then he identifies himself as the bright morning star, which is Venus. The star that brings in the light of day. And in Christ, the promise of night is over and the promise of the kingdom dawning is at hand. Now, that's what he says. Now, that's good news for the church, isn't it? He's coming. That's good news for the church. Let's put it this way. It's good news for the obedient people in the church. Bad news for the compromised. They had news for the enemy of the cross even though they have walked forward in an invitation and they've been baptized and they pledge their allegiance to Christ. But now, they turn their back on Christ and are willing to say that Caesar's Lord. Now for those of you who were not here a few weeks ago, I want to just make a statement so that you can understand that faith means more than just making an initial profession profession of faith, it means faithfulness, it means loyalty, it means giving your allegiance to Christ your entire life, no matter what the cost. Just as a soldier pledges his allegiance to the United States of America, is that just a one-time faith allegiance, and now he can do whatever he wants to do? Ten years later, can he sell, can he sell uh, secrets to the Russians? How about if he decided to sell some secrets to the Russians? Who would we call that person? Was he ever really faithful? Oh, he maybe intended to be, but he's not faithful. He's a traitor. What does he get? He'll get a death penalty. Now, that's what you have in the church. A lot of people have initially said, I pledge my allegiance to Christ. But their life doesn't show it. They're compromising. And he says, I'm coming. I'm going to straighten it out. And he has a way of straightening it out. Well, Ananias and Sapphire, they said, "Yeah, we just sold some property. We're giving all of our money to this building project." Let's say, and guess what? When it came time to turn it in, they put some of it back in their pocket. And so, Ananias came in, and what happened to him? Peter said, "You've lied, not the man. You've lied to God. See, so you made a pledge." Dropped over, dead. That's Christ judging the church. Now, Peter said you're going to die, but guess what? It was Christ. It was the authority behind Christ. That's what happens. That's how God deals with people. Now, this is written that they will repent. He doesn't want to have to come. In fact, he says, look, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming suddenly, when you least expect it. So guess what? That means you should repent right now. That's what he's trying to say to these people. So, that's what we have here. Good news for the faithful, bad news for the unbeliever, and now we have John's interjection in verse 17. In light of the prophecy, we are called to respond in a certain way. Now look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Now the Spirit is the Spirit of God, and we know the Bride from chapter 21 is the New Jerusalem. As a Bride, that's the church coming down on earth. So we see the saints that are with Christ. And we see the Spirit of God saying, Come! Now, to whom is the word come addressed? Who are they asking to come? Come! The Spirit, in light of what you just read. The Spirit of God and the New Jerusalem, people in the New Jerusalem say, Come! Are they crying out to the sinners to come? Or are they crying out for Christ to come? Big question, isn't it? Very ambiguous in the Greek. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's a cry out to sinners. Come! Come now! Repent! It's also a cry out. Come, Jesus! Help! We need you now! God... And the heavenly church say, Come. And look at this. Let him who hears. Who would that be? That would be the earthly church, wouldn't it? The earthly church. The ones who are in the seven churches who are hearing this letter being read. Let him who hears say, What? Come! Come! Take care of Jezebel! Take care of Balaam! Come! Is it a cry to Jesus or is it a cry for those sinners to come? Come! Well, maybe it's both. We don't know. But that's just one or the other. And then look at the rest of verse 17. It says this. And let him who is thirsty come. That's the center. He doesn't say come. He is the come. Now you know what thirsty means. You saw that in the New Jerusalem last week. Let's talk about Thirsting for eternal life. He talked about the water life. Let the sinner come. Now notice, it says, let him who thirsts come. That means the sinner must see his need. He must say, I'm thirsty. I need a drink. See, sinners don't come unless they sense that they have a need. Let him who thirsts come. So this is the cry of the sinner I'm thirsty. I'm coming. And then look at the end of verse 17. Whosoever desires, let him take the water of life freely, which we know represents eternal life. So, not only must the sinner sense his need, the sinner must have a desire. Whosoever desires, let him come and look. Take. You see that? Take. You can come to the well... And not take. You can say, I'm thirsty. But then, you get right to the edge. Close to the kingdom. But you don't take that next step and you don't drink. You don't drink in the everlasting life. You've heard the saying, you can lead a horse to water... So you have to have that desire Now notice that it says, Whosoever desires Let him take the water of life freely Notice the whosoever in there Do you see that? The whosoever will There's no restrictions The only restriction is a desire And then To reach out and take Take it how? Take it freely Without cost Without restrictions The invitation's open Come Say come And if you sense your need this morning and you you said, I need this. I look at my life, I look more like the people who are compromisers than the people who are faithful. Then this invitation is for you. Come without hesitation, come without hindrance. Remember the woman at the well? When Jesus said, I have water water that you do not know of? And she said, Lord, give me that drink. See, she desired. She found salvation. This is the aim of the book of Revelation. It's a call for us to respond. Now, let me just make a statement here. Every church and every generation from this church onwards is faced with this message. Now, I can say with assurance that Revelation was not written to us. It was written to the seven churches, but it is written for us. It's just like the United States Constitution. It wasn't written to us. We weren't living back when it was written. It was written for the situation in that age. But it's certainly written for us, isn't it? And we are to live according to the Constitution of the United States. What we try to find is original intent. What did the authors originally intend when they wrote that Constitution? And then we derive that principle and we apply it to our lives in the 21st century. This book wasn't written to me but it was written for me. Our job is to find the intent of the original authors. What did it mean to those seven churches? And then when we discover what it meant, we find the original intent, then we take that principle and we apply it to our churches today and we apply it to our lives. So every church of every generation is faced with the message of the book of Revelation. And every church... And every Sunday school class either heeds the message or continues in their reprobation still. See, either we will continue in our righteousness still. that is what a person that is what a person who really pledges their faith to Christ does, continues walking in the right way, all the way to the end. A faithful soldier of the cross. The traitor, like Judas Iscariot, just continues to walk in their way. And takes the judgment. book of Revelation is very important. Next week we'll finish off these last five verses. We'll give you a little summary and we'll look at the seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Lord, we want to know the intent of this book. The author's original intent. We are originalists in the way we look at a constitution, in the way we look at our Bible, the constitution of the Christian faith. Oh Lord, so many people who call themselves believers, fundamentalists, evangelicals, treat this book as as if they're liberal. They don't seek any original intent, what it meant to those churches. They act like it's the Constitution's a living document, evolving, changing. And so many of us do that with this book. We only look at it from a futuristic standpoint. And we call ourselves believers, evangelicals. Oh Lord, help us to find this original intent, what it meant to them, and what it means for us.